turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. This week in The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with our sponsors, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, I'm Calvin McCullough. Great to be with you. This week, Donald Trump looks to stop the mayhem. The president has the full authority to protect the nation and call up federal troops to do that. Blue states take the brunt. Now we have all these cities that are falling apart, and they're all in liberal bastion. Alveda King responds to celebrities. Even for the Hollywood and the celebrities who are going to bail the looters and the rioters out, why don't they go and bail out some of those mom-and-pop African-American organizations who've been destroyed? And pastors seek racial reconciliation. Whether we have someone's knee on our neck or not, the global community is rising up and saying, I can't breathe. I'm Kevin McCullough, your host, coming to you from battle-weary New York City. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on AM 570 The Mission and FM 102.3, along with AM 970 The Answer. Take a moment to follow me and Christian Outlook on Twitter. My handle is at KMC Radio, and the Christian Outlook is at TC Outlook. Great to be with you. The tragic killing of George Floyd, which we will discuss in more detail later in the program, understandably led to protests nationwide. They started in Minneapolis, the city of Floyd's death, and from the beginning, something was amiss in the crowds that gathered. What started out as peaceful quickly morphed into looting, beginning with the local Target store. Then an auto zone was hit, and suddenly looting became arson. The next day, the mayhem spread. A Minneapolis police department was abandoned as thugs attacked it, eventually setting it ablaze. Soon after, cities coast to coast were hit. Police were overwhelmed. Chaos reigned. It seems the peaceful protesters were used as a cover by groups like Antifa, whose goal is anarchy. Here in my hometown, New York City, looters targeted high-end businesses when darkness fell. The protesting became looting, the looting became arson, and then murder. More blacks have died at the hands of the so-called protesters than suffocated beneath the knee of that rogue cop. Earlier in the week, President Trump told governors if they don't figure out how to protect their citizens, he will act on behalf of those who are looking to their leaders for help. I discussed what this entails with General Jack Keane on Kevin McCullough Radio. It looked like warfare on the ground, that these people have communications, they have funding, they have strategic ability, they have somehow been able to get bricks to locations in mass quantities, etc. And I'm just curious, General, from the other side of this, as a military person, did you notice some of those same things? Oh, yes. I think when we take a look at what is what has taken place, I mean, there's three distinct groups that are involved in it. Certainly there are the, the protesters who are, have a legitimate right to go out and protest, and, and they are overwhelmingly peaceful. Uh, second, you have looters who are literally out there bashing and robbing, and that's their motivation to steal something that doesn't belong to them. 
And then third, you have the group that you're talking about, uh, which are extremists, anarchists, maybe as a better description, Tifa. And Tifa is likely the most known uh, of that group. And yes, I mean, uh, they, they're here with a plan. They have logistical support uh, with vehicles and supplies, and they're able to reinforce one another. They also, if somebody gets hurt, they conduct a medical evacuation you know, of that, of that person. So yes, that, that's organized to be sure. And I know our FBI is, is likely working overtime trying to identify the leaders and, and certainly point them out to law enforcement so they, yeah. they can clearly be arrested. I mean, they, they want to create chaos and anarchy and break down the system in America. And, and their major vehicle for doing that, Kevin, is extreme violence. Yeah. Well, let me take that conversation then to the next level, because obviously the president is seeing the same things that you're identifying. And he is uh, saying that uh, if necessary, he will he will move to use uh, whatever resources are at his disposal. There's some debate about that. Your take on whether or not calling up the National Guard or the uh, the the formal military is our options that he should be exploring. And if so, uh, what are the. Uh, strengths or, or advantages to doing one over the other or both or wh- where do you how do you see it yeah well right now um, and the numbers may have changed because i'm essentially uh, going on yesterday's report we have about seventeen thousand national guard that are activated and in one form or another are assisting uh, local law enforcement and i think that's appropriate the the national guard uh, acting on the behalf of the governor is authorized to help enforce laws in the United States, our audience should know that there is a law called Posse Comitatus, which goes back a couple of centuries, which prohibits federal troops from enforcing laws or policing the American people inside the United States. And I think, by and large, that's a good law. And I think most of the troops would rather protect the American people as opposed to police them. Right. All that said, there's an exception to that law called the Insurrection Act that was passed in 1807, which provides a noted exception that in, when there is violence to such a degree or an insurrection, that the president has the full authority to protect the nation and call up federal troops to do that. So if federal troops are going to be involved, then that would be the law the president would execute. And I think, look, at having that as an option and examining that certainly is something that should be explored. I think we should be cautious about the use of federal troops to police the American people and only do so if the situation warrants it. Last time was 1992. George H.W. Bush uh, was the Los Angeles riots that grew out of something very similar, the Rodney King incident where he was brutally beaten and the the jury found the, the defendants innocent and that produced the riots in that one. I think there were at least 40, 50 people killed and thousands actually wounded. So yeah. it was a it was a very desperate situation. And, and Governor Pete Wilson asked the, the president to help. So I, I think it's an option. But I think my judgment is we only use it if there is no other course of action. Victor Davis Hansen wrote an article titled The Doctrine of Media Untruth, which discusses the media's tendency to misrepresent the issues in critical times like this. He spoke with Don Crow on WAVA in the hard-hit city of Washington, D.C. I need to, or at least want to get 
your assessment of the tragedy in Minneapolis, the murder of George Floyd, and the aftermath of mayhem and destruction that's now following. What were your own reactions initially, and what are they now? Well, I think we were all shocked at the the expression on the policeman's face as he put the knee for eight minutes on George Floyd's neck. It was unnecessary, and it led to his death, obviously. And we were, I think, encouraged that the county attorney and city attorney moved very quickly to charge the officer in question. And then the president ordered a federal civil rights investigation. The state is involved. So the wheels of justice are turning very rapidly, and he'll face justice for that. And that's, and I also thought that something's wrong with Minnesota in general and Minneapolis in particular. It's a blue state, blue, blue state attorney general, blue mayor, liberal police chief. And yet just four years ago, an Australian white woman was shot by a black officer. And then two years later, a Latino officer shot a black suspect, both whom died. And so they have this high profile interracial shooting. And uh, it's a something's wrong with a one-party state, as I can attest in California. As far as the tragic protests that turned to looting and arson very quickly, I thought that the Baltimore mayor four years, four or five years ago, Mayor Reynolds, had said that she'd given space for those who wanted to destroy was sort of an outlier. But when I heard the Michigan governor use that exact phrase, I wanted to give people space, and the mayor said that brick and mortar didn't really matter when they burned down the police precinct station then you get the idea that this is the first riot in my 66 years that I can remember local and state officials either being indifferent to the damage that occurred early on or almost trying to contextualize it or apologize for it. And then when I, I read that the, the mayor of New York's daughter was arrested trying to resist police or that the state attorney general, Keith Ellison, had disseminated Antifa material and his son who's a city council member, was tweeting support for Antifa. And the daughter of the governor of Minnesota was reported to reassure people when the National Guard would come and protesters had to make the necessary adjustments. I've never seen any Orwellian situation quite like that. And that's and now we have all of these cities that are falling apart, and they're all in liberal bastions, and yet the people in control – don't seem to be on the side of the small business person that's that's the lifeblood of their cities. And they're contextualizing or apologizing or appeasing the protesters, looters, arsonists, whatever term we want to use. It's very strange. And I, I wrote that other article before all this about the media. But when you have the media go full Baghdad Bob style, where a building will be burning and the CNN commentator will say, there's no evidence that this is a, a violent protest or when another national news person has sort of sidestep looters as a cross between him and the camera. And he says that this is not violent. It's really, it's Orwellian. And, and so I know it's an election year and I know that the left is doing to this disaster, what they try to do with Mueller and impeachment and COVID and the economic lockdown. I understand Joe Biden has some problems with the black community and he's promised a diversity candidate and he's trying to mine this tragedy in the democratic party is, but it's something that I don't think any of us have quite seen the react. We've seen more violent, deadly riots, but we've never seen authorities so indifferent to the, the terrible toll it's taking on the, these cities. 
talk about Antifa because uh, the, the, the president this week's on record as declaring it a, a terrorist group, uh, officially and formally so, I assume. Uh, what will that do, and uh, is, it, is it not long overdue, perhaps, that they be identified for who they are? And are they not, many of them, funded from foreign sources, uh, George Soros' case in point? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a disconnect here that we get the idea that the oppressed were in need of economic parity. But yet when you looked at the looters, the inner city looters, they were taking Louis Vuitton bags and and expensive sneakers. And then when you saw this elite group of Antifa, for the most part, I think you could say white elites, and they were out organizing arson and directing strategic attacks on particular stores, you, you got the impression they don't want a felony on their record. And if we crack down on them and we start to subpoena their records and find out that they were coordinating via email and the federal mails or whatever cross-state, interstate methodology they were using, they could face mm. conspiracy charges. And as we know from the, people, the two sisters who firebombed the policemen, these are elites. These are people with very good jobs, and they sort of masquerade as weekend warriors and social activist protesters. But once they get hit with a felony, a career-ending felony, I think that'll have a lot of deterrence. Coming up, Dr. Alveda King. Why don't they go and bail out some of those mom-and-pop African-American organizations who've been destroyed? The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. This COVID-19 crisis has been straining the limits of our constitutional system. Over the next few years, we'll see a generation of new and grounded policy leaders emerge. They'll be prepared at Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more about the deadline for application at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom. I'm Kevin McCullough. It was April 4, 1968, when our nation was met with the news that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Though King's own supporters urged calm, the nation saw widespread riots. We've been here before. But the circumstances are not the same. The United States is a vastly different place. With the death of George Floyd, the citizens are in complete agreement. Racism has no place in society. These riots are not about the unjust killing. I discussed the issue with the niece of Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Alveda King, on Kevin McCullough Radio. Dr. King, if this is Antifa, and they have a long history just in recent years of really uh, grotesque violence. I mean, you see some of the demonstrations up in Portland where they've gone after people with harsh violence. But they are such cowards because the people that are mourning George Floyd and that are asking for a dialogue about this discussion are at the front of the parade. These guys use them as human shields. They come in and they infiltrate. You can even tell just in looking at them most times that they're not part of the same group. Is the president within his, um, is he getting a bum rap on this? Is he getting blamed? Are they conflating the conversation that to make it appear as though he's coming down against the uh, peaceful protesters when in reality he just wants to get the bad agents out of there? Well, Antifa is a part of the picture, but it's not only Antifa. And uh, I, I actually was reading this morning about how some people can come in and influence kind and good people, and their motives are not right. 
And so Antifa and others with these motives of stealing, killing and destroying are breaking into these communities. And the president, of course, is saying, I need to help protect America. I, I was elected to do this. I said America first. America needs to be safe and viable and thriving. And it cannot thrive if people like Antifa or all these other malcontents keep coming in attempting to destroy. Yeah. So the president is perfectly okay. You know, but even for the Hollywood and the celebrities who are going to bail people out, the looters and the rioters out, why don't they go and bail out some of those small businesses, mom and pop African-American organizations who've been destroyed with these bricks and uh, Maltese yeah. firebombs and all of that? And I even understood that some people are going around in the midst of the riots passing out bricks so people would have something to throw. Not only are they going around passing them out, they're, they're getting reinforcements. People are bu- bringing them by the truckload and having them uh, pre-delivered to some of these areas, which is just... Yes, and have a stack sitting there waiting for... For the uh, people to be incited. Yeah. That's ridiculous. They need to be rebuilding these businesses that they're tearing down. Well, I wasn't going to ask you about the Hollywood thing, but since you brought it up, <laughs> Dr. King, yeah. a lot of people are, uh, I'm, I'm scratching my head. I mean, 13 of Joe Biden's campaign staff workers contributed to the bail funding to get these guys back out on the streets. 13 of his That's campaign outrageous. staff. To go and tear up some more. And, and you know, if we want to keep trying to destroy various communities, African-American, sometimes Latino, et cetera, based on racial bias, that skin color makes you a separate race. It does not. We're one human race and one blood. Science proves that religion, philosophy. And also if people run around. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Well, you need some glasses. Colorblindness is a sickness and a disease. We have to see each other, love each other, and work with each other. Yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. said we, we may have come over on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Mm. And almost everybody here except Native Americans are immigrants to America, whether it was forced as forced labor, as slaves, uh, all kinds of things happen to us. So we need to work together and stop destroying property. I was very touched when George Floyd's brother, uh, I think his name is Terrence, yesterday um, pleaded with those gathered in Minneapolis around his brother's uh, the site of his death uh, to uh, remember that George was a peaceful man. Um, uh, he, he said that uh, his family is uh, a God-fearing family and that uh, this is not the, 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 the this behavior is not something that uh, George would have wanted to be part of the discussion uh, about his legacy or about anything uh, pertaining to this uh, matter. And I hope that people are hearing that, though I have a feeling if these outside groups uh, continue to wield their influence, they're not really much caring what George Floyd would want. They do not care, but George Floyd's legacy will not be forgotten. As a peaceful man, God-fearing, helping to build strong communities, especially with young people, we will remember George in that way for his, his legacy, his brother, his family. And as I say, it's just outrageous and disrespectful after a man has been killed to go around and continue to try to undo the good deeds and the good work that he did. That's disrespectful. If you listen to many of my fellow Salem hosts this week, you'll have noticed a common theme. Show after show invited black pastors on their program to discuss the struggles of black Americans. The evangelical community has long made racial reconciliation a high priority. As believers, we are bound by something far bigger than our skin color. WAVA's Don Crow returns with his conversation with Dr. David Ireland, senior pastor of the 9,000-member Christ Church 
in my home area of New Jersey. We know the Jews and Gentiles had major racial problems in the early church, and Paul called them to realize there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc., and that the middle wall of partition had been broken down between the two, and they somehow found a way to, uh, I'm sure it was rough, rough going at times uh, between the two groups, but how can we today, 21st century Christians, begin to understand biblically what we're talking about and how to, uh, how to bring this into a biblical context? That's a great question, and I love the fact that Paul spent time coaching Peter on mm. how to be more cross-cultural. Mm. That whole discourse in Galatians 2, it captures for us coaching tips that Paul was teaching this apostle. And, uh, and many times we think that because one walks with Jesus, we are automatically cross-cultural. Not so. Peter walked with Jesus. He was one of the 12 apostles that walked, ate, sleep, you know, saw Jesus do miracles, but yet he himself had a problem with being cross-cultural. And so one thing that Paul did for him was to confront him. And so we have to welcome confrontation. Confrontation can take place either internally or externally. Internally is where I'm convicted that my values and my actions don't cohere. They don't align. Confrontation, when it's external, is when someone comes to us in a respectful way, approaches us, and in essence puts a mirror in front of our face and says, the way you're behaving is not what you believe or the best or in line with Scripture. And so you have to change. And that's one of the things that Paul did for Peter. The other thing Paul did for Peter was that he modeled advocacy to Peter. See, Paul was leading this multiracial church there in Antioch, and Peter was a visiting minister. But Peter started to separate himself from the Gentile believers because he didn't know how to behave in a cross-cultural setting. He was uncomfortable. And so Paul confronted Peter by letting Peter know that the way you're behaving is different than what you preach, teach, and what Jesus himself modeled and taught to us. And so advocacy is when Paul is taking the position of the Gentile and communicating to Peter, Peter, you're offending people. And so Paul is then the voice for the people that felt either uh, in a, unable to speak to this awesome apostle Peter, this revered leader of the Christian church. And so advocacy is when you're providing a voice for the voiceless, and you're able to present their position persuasively, passionately, in a way that they could be able to, you know, you know, to feel as if I'm being heard. And I think that's, what was, that's what's lacking here when we see George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. Whether we have someone's knee on our neck or not, the global community is rising up and saying, I can't breathe, when they're being taken advantage of by people in power. Coming up, a sheriff seeks to protect his community. We like guns. We have guns. We know how to use guns. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. I'd like to talk to you for a moment about ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. You've seen how your freedom is under attack. But if you act now, you can protect your family today and for generations to come. Go to ChristianOutlook.com to find out how you can join Alliance Defending Freedom to help ensure that the opponents of freedom don't dictate your future. That's ChristianOutlook.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Kevin McCullough. 
Florida Sheriff Grady Judd made headlines this week when he encouraged citizens to take up arms to protect themselves from looters, arsonists, and rioters who were becoming increasingly dangerous. We have received information in social media that some of the criminals were going to take their criminal conduct into the neighborhoods. I would tell them if you value your life, you probably shouldn't do that in Polk County because the people of Polk County like guns. They have guns. I encourage them to own guns. And they're going to be in their homes tonight with their guns loaded. And if you try to break into their homes to steal, to set fires, I'm highly recommending they blow you back out of the house with their guns. He explained why on The Bill Bunkley Show on WTBN Faith Talk in Tampa Bay, Florida. How important is it that if you as a sheriff or or Bill Muntz as mayor is going to tell the community, the good folks and the bad folks, hey, this is the way it's going to roll, how important is it for you to keep your word? Well, you have to follow up and you have to do exactly what you say. But let me explain that the police are responding to a top administration in the police department, ultimately the chief. The chief is getting his direction from either the elected mayor and or a city manager or top commissioners or council members. When you see a police group just retract, they've been ordered to retract. Someone told them to retract. When you see them not perform professionally and responsibly, they're either not trained, not well-trained, or don't have the equipment. Now, quite frankly, you can get a crowd so large that you can't handle it by yourself. Well, you call in reinforcements, and then you go in and you pick out your troublemakers. Once you pick your troublemakers out, the rest of the folks calm down and disperse. But it's always that few people. Make no mistake about it. As you look at these riots across the country, there is trained, organized folks in charge of many of those riots. So what you're seeing is you're seeing some well-trained antagonists that come from far away, a lot of times it's from outside of town, to stir up and create the hate and, and, and problems there are in that particular community. Well, you have to find, locate, find those people, pluck them out, arrest them immediately and quickly. And if you as a looter or as a criminal coming in there to create a deadly use of force against the homeowner or the store owner, they have a right to protect themselves. Boy, for for years and years and years, I have uh, from time to time told my audience to understand that in the days that we live, and not just now but in the past, that there's a time when you make a 911 call and there's a time where the cavalry or the help arrives, but between the moments of making that call and the cavalry arriving, or even if you have something that is now happening inside your home, I've been a strong advocate for uh, not only getting uh, expertly trained in the use of whatever firearm, a shotgun or a a handgun or whatever. I'll talk about that because I know that I was even, it was funny because I even saw, I guess there's a Twitter account out there that says watching Grady Judd or something. So obviously when you said that, we get it. 
some of the folks on the left may not. But talk about that because, you know what, when your fine men and women are, are coming to a call, it's up to the citizens. They're on their own till you get there, aren't they? Absolutely. First and foremost, we'd like to be a peaceable society. We'd like to love everybody. But when you are approached with that deadly threat, when seconds count, police officers are minutes away. We'll never get there in time. You have to protect yourself until we get there. And that's why I tell folks, look, I wish that everybody would behave. But there is evil in society, and there are people out there that, for whatever reason, want to hurt you. And usually it's if you get in their way while they're trying to steal your stuff or rob you or stick a gun in your face. You have to protect yourself. We never want to hurt anybody. But it's very important to understand that you need to be well-trained with a firearm only to protect yourself. Not to run out and look for problems, not to engage someone (laughs) proactively, but to defend yourself if somebody wants to cause great bodily harm to you or your family that can end up in serious injury or death. Coming up, Heather McDonald. When you have a constant narrative undermining the legitimacy of the police, uh, it's far more likely that people are going to fight them. Christian Outlook returns in a moment. This COVID-19 crisis has been straining the limits of our constitutional system. Over the next few years, we'll see a generation of new and grounded policy leaders emerge. They'll be prepared at Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more about the deadline for application at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom. I'm Kevin McCullough. The vast majority of policemen on the force are good. They risk their lives every day for the citizens of their community. It's repugnant that the entire force is judged based upon the actions of one rogue cop. We don't do that with any other field. Teachers, doctors, nurses... Heather McDonald, author of The War on Cops, penned an article debunking much of what we hear regarding police and race. She spoke with syndicated host Eric Metaxas. The police kill about a thousand people a year. That number has remained stable since 2015. That's out of about 375 million contacts with civilians a year. Blacks since 2015 have made up about a quarter of those victims of fatal police shootings. Virtually everybody, all of those 1,000 victims of police shootings were armed, violent, or resisting arrest and otherwise dangerous. Uh, So let's look at the unarmed category, which is a very uh, slippery category. This is in the Washington Post, started putting together a database of all police killings of civilians starting in 2015, they define unarmed in a remarkably broad and generous way. Uh, One of the cases in 2019 was a guy who was uh, fleeing from cops in Newark, New Jersey. After a car stop, the the car took off, led the police on a chase. There was a loaded semi-automatic pistol uh, in, in the car 
uh, the, the, the occupant was shot fatally because of the, of the fatal cartridge. But having a, a loaded gun in your car does not necessarily mean you're, you're unarmed. But let's just accept at face value the Washington Post classification. There were nine allegedly unarmed black males killed in 2019. How many black males were killed by criminal homicide in 2019? We don't have the final numbers yet, but if it's the same as 2018, 7,500. So those nine unarmed black victims of police shootings is 0.1% of all homicide, black homicide victims in the country. There were 19 so-called unarmed white victims of police shooting. So this narrative that this is the way black people die is simply not true. And that 25% uh, of all fatal police shootings uh, that comprised by blacks, the 25% is far lower than what would, would expect when you look at the black crime rate because blacks commit over half of all homicides in this country uh, about two-thirds of all robberies and assaults. And it is the chance with which a police officer is going to encounter a violent felon that predicts the use of force. So I submit, now maybe you disagree with me, but I, it would be great if the police shot nobody. But that's not going to happen until crime disappears and people stop resisting arrest because even those unarmed victims, virtually all of them were resisting arrest. That's something that it's interesting. It's one of the reasons I want to have you on because there's so much nuance here. That issue of resisting arrest, the point is they're human beings, right? So I was always taught to be really, really respectful of them. So whenever I see someone resisting arrest, I'm, actually fascinated. I think, are you kidding? Like, that's a cop. Do you have any idea what he might do or could do and might get away with it? Because maybe there are dirty cops. And guess what? Of course, there are some dirty cops. Is there any data that tells us when it became popular uh, to, to resist arrest? I mean, we know in the history of, of uh, in history, there have always been people resisting arrest. But it seems to me that if you have a fundamental sense that the cops don't have any business bothering you, then uh, you're more likely to resist arrest. Absolutely. Uh, I've got get, the Chicago Police Department gave me data a few years ago that blacks are, are 10 times uh, arrested for resisting arrest at 10 times the rate of whites. Now, there's many ways you can slice and dice that. The fact is, is that the crime commission is so much higher. I mean, the, the, if you're a black Chicagoan, you are 50 times, five zero times more likely to commit a shooting than white Chicagoans. Uh, both blacks and whites in Chicago are a little under a third of the city's population. Blacks commit 80% of all shootings uh, in Chicago, whites less than 1%. Those, those crime disparities exist in every city. So the, the fact that blacks are arrested 10 times the rate can mean simply they're because they're being arrested for other crimes at 10 times the rate. It could mean that the cops are being unfair 
and are not arresting whites. Uh, well, you were asking about what, what it means that resisting arrest seems to be so much uh, more prevalent today. And I gave you some data on it, but I also totally agree with you that when you have a constant narrative undermining the legitimacy of the police, uh, it's far more likely that people are gonna fight them. And the idea that, that blacks are running around scared of the cops kind of isn't what you know, a police officer will tell you. Uh, these days, and this began after Ferguson, you know what I call the Ferguson effect, people will surround cops uh, when they get out of their car, shout at them, curse at them, throw bottles at them. Last week, as a matter of fact, uh, right after the, the uh, George Floyd arrest became public, people were preventing the cops from arresting gun-toting criminals, a guy that had just thrown his gun under a car, somebody who was likely the suspect in a shooting that had just shot a five-year-old girl and two teenage boys. Uh, and, and they will absolutely, without any fear, uh, attack cops. So that certainly does lead to resisting arrest. Also, it is the case that a cop will tell you he could solve every inner city homicide or shooting. You know, we always are complaining that the media complains about the low clearance rates in many uh, urban police departments. Well, the reason for that is because of the no snitching ethic that says that you are a sellout if you cooperate with the police. Coming up, the achievement of justice requires the precondition of a certain amount of social order, social respect, and social trust. When those disappear, then the entire civilization is threatened. Dr. Albert Moeller, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. The riots we saw this week led to another question as the violence escalated day after day. What can the federal government do when local government fails? At the very top of the responsibility of government, if it does nothing else, is the protection of its citizens. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, addressed the complicated issue on his daily briefing. When the president did speak of invoking the Insurrection Act of 1807, that was not an irrational statement. It is clear that our national political order cannot stand this kind of uncertainty and mayhem and violence and disorder. The achievement of justice requires the precondition of a certain amount of social order, social respect, and social trust. When those disappear, then the entire civilization is threatened. And the Insurrection Act of 1807 does indeed give the President of the United States the power to invoke that act and to use the United States military to shut down an insurrection. But as the editors of the Wall Street Journal said, the president has that power, but must use that power very, very sparingly. The editors of the journal, who have also called for the establishment of order, have pointed out that the American military is ill-suited for domestic action because it's trained to inflict injury on America's enemies. 
The National Guard's a very different picture. And, of course, that's a part of our federalism with the National Guard having a military power, but nonetheless under the authority of the nation's 50 governors. And many of those governors have called out the National Guard. And the National Guard has decades of experience dealing with handling unrest inside the United States amongst American citizens, not towards America's external enemies. And even though the Insurrection Act is dated from 1807, many in the mainstream media acted as if it has never been invoked before. But of course, it has been, including during the Rodney King riots, as they were known in Los Angeles and elsewhere, but particularly in Los Angeles in the year 1992. The president at that time was President George H.W. Bush. The action was limited, but the debate inside the administration and inside American culture about whether or not the president should invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807 is now completely combustible in the current context of partisan politics in which you really do not have much of a considered decision-making process amongst the American people, certainly or in the American media, and you do not have cooler heads prevailing in the national conversation. We have to count on the fact that cooler heads will prevail where they matter most. And that means right now in the Oval Office, in the administration, in the Pentagon, in the American government, amongst our governors, amongst our mayors, and those right now who have the moral authority and the specific governmental responsibility to reestablish order in the name of human dignity and American society on the streets of the nation. Thanks for joining us today. If you liked our program, take a moment to share it with a friend. Start at ChristianOutlook.com. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF Alliance Defending Freedom. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards and David Posehan, Mike Cook and Alex Garrett, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us next time for the Christian Outlook. She ran away.